You could totally just, just, you know, give the signal and then cut it back later. Right, right. But that's not how it works. Welcome to Two Bees in a Podcast. Dude, this, is a, this is a one take. Charlie's had to pee for the last hour. So yeah. We don't care. Yeah. Um, well, you can just sneak out nobody would know. That's probably true. That's probably true. Um, speaking of knowing... Oh, are we on air? We're actually here, yeah. Okay. We're, we're going, yeah. Are you ready? Speaking of knowing, yeah. Um, yeah, I started recording a little bit early today. Always nice. Thank you, Charlie. Um, so, you guys, welcome to Two Peas in the Podcast. Um, I don't know if we're going to be calling it Two Peas in the Podcast forever. Yeah, we're, we're thinking of rebranding Maybe so that we can have something cool on our resumes. Yeah, basically. like a contest with uh, special, secret, seductive, and elusive prizes available. <laughs> I mean, I've got something in mind right now, but oh, uh, I'm yes, curious. yes, it's kind of what we're talking about the contest as well. Let's not bore our wonderful listeners with oh, behind the scenes. Stuff. What's the call-in number if you have an idea for a name? Oh, it's like um, 902, uh, 310 1010, or 310 3030, <laughs> or 429 6666, I believe is the number. That is the one. Yeah. Call so. 902-429-6666. Yeah. Do you have an idea for renaming Two Peas in a Podcast? The voice you're hearing there is our wonderful special guest star this week, Charlie Bourne. How's it going? Say hello to, say hello to the people, Charlie. Hello to the people. Yes. No, no Russian accents for me. No, we're going to hold <laughs> off. Anne, has, uh, she's traveling right now, so we won't have her guest star. <laughs> we do, of course, sell... Have the wonderful Andrea Sitlau here. How are you doing today, Andrea? Good. Yeah. Good. Just postponing the history dossier. Right. Do this instead. Right. Always We're uh, rocking it here in HB4. Still not really on a patio. No, yeah, this are some sessions are Yeah, <laughs> but in spirit, I mean, the sun's coming in. I'm just drinking a coffee, so. <laughs> there are beverages on the table. It's true. I am wearing the shortest of shorts. Just picture that. All the best. Let's go for that. Um, okay, so this week's reading, just get down to it. Uh, yeah, Monuments, Memorials, and the Politics of Memory by Catherine Mitchell. I looked her up. She's a geography professor at the University of Washington, and she recently won some kind of fancy award. Speaking of I'm fancy, sure is it Catherine or Catherine? I'm is this like a three syllable? Catherine. There is an A Catherine. Catherine. and a Catherine. Y. Catherine Mitchell. And an E. That's a lot of extra letters that don't even need to be there. It's true. Um, we're saving you guys all of this. We're giving you guys one of the conversations since you're saving all this time from actually reading the text. <laughs> Didn't want you to confuse Catherine. Catherine, we may pronounce it differently throughout the way. I will definitely go with the three syllable Catherine. Okay. Yeah, all right. Maybe we should get into it so that people don't just turn us off and read Right. Themselves. Okay. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, start out here. Um, monuments, memorials, and the politics of memory. Um, and I guess kind of uh, subheading here is memory and spectacle, the politicization of art and the aestheticism aestheticization of modern politics. So we start out here with, uh, with a quote from one of my favorite radio personalities, Walter Benjamin. The quote here is, All efforts to render politics aesthetic culminate in one thing. War. It's 1968 he's talking about, too. Yeah. Some heavy stuff. Mm. So, Charlie, would you like to lead us off here? Well, if that bodes well or poorly for the reading to follow, let's find out. Sounds great. 
On September 11, 2001, two planes were flown into the World Trade Center in New York, causing the complete destruction of several acres of downtown property and the death of nearly 3,000 people. Was this a terrorist act aimed at human beings, at a pair of buildings, at a city, at a nation, or at a particular socioeconomic regime? How will this event be remembered? How will it be commemorated, memorialized, sanctified, spectacularized? At what scale will memory reflect back on itself? In the aftermath of the attack, as the final debris was being cleared away, New York politicians, developers, architects, members of the public, and victims' families engaged in profound debates over the ways in which this now symbolic space would be handled. The ensuing and ongoing struggle over the future of the space reflects the age-old struggle over the memorialization of the past and its imbrication in a deep and often unnamed politics of collective memory. Exactly one year after the tragic occurrence in New York, the American president, George Bush, George W. Bush, <laughs> staged his own eye-catching event. On the anniversary of September 11th, the Bush team of handlers set up three barges of enormous musco lights around the base of the Statue of Liberty and blasted them upward to eliminate all 305 feet of America's symbol of freedom. Bush then delivered a speech about American freedom, patriotism, and national resilience from Ellis Island with the statue in the backdrop, backdrop completely illuminated by the power of a type of lighting generally reserved for the use in sports stadiums or rock concerts. This type of spectacular image making was continued months later with Bush's short flight and landing on the deck of the carrier Abraham Lincoln as well as the staging of numerous speeches around the world. Said one ABC cameraman who covers events at the White House, they seem to approach an event site like it's a TV set. They dress it up really nicely. It looks like a million bucks. And said Daniel Deaver, Reagan's chief image maker in the past, quote, they understand they have, they have to build a set, whether it's an aircraft carrier or the Rose Garden or the South Lawn, they understand that putting depth into the picture makes the candidate or the president look better. They understand that what's around, what, what's around the head is just as important as the head. The president's commemoration of the events of September 11th can thus be construed as not just a memorial speech concerning a political terrorist act, but as an intensely political act in itself, an act building on the collective memory of the recent past but also producing that memory's future through a highly particular form of aesthetized, spectacularized politics. In this, we can see a number of processes at work, the so social construction of memory and fixation of meaning through repetition, the semiotics of space, where the use of monument, monuments, such as the Statue of Liberty, are of crucial importance, the use of commemorations as a, quote, practice of representation that enacts and gives social substance to the discourse of collective memory. The importance of technology such as lighting and film in memories, contemporary production and reproduction, and the role of memorialization as an attempted agency of legitimization of authority and social cohesion. Whew. So I just did a little research on Musco lighting, oh, lights you. used to light up uh, George Stadiums. W. Bush and, and the Statue of Liberty. <laughs> yeah, they're definitely a movie lighting company. They oh. get used. They were first used in a Tom Cruise film in 1983, the very famous "All the Right Moves." Oh my God, what a great movie! <laughs> what a classic! Yeah. So they actually used a company that's accustomed to making 
a particular story, they used that company to light up a present right. on how to collectively remember September 11th. Does it seem that odd, though, that um, any time that you're going to get in front of a camera and address people that you're not going to do just what they say, set a stage? I mean, you're not going to take a picture without thinking of how to like, compose the frame and things like that, right? Like, I get that this has happened, but I don't find it that surprising or that it's not, like, outrageous when you do these things. You know? True. Brings me back to Versailles. What with all the sets and... Oh, right. <laughs> yeah, 100%. <laughs> Yeah, they were obviously trying to create a certain memory in people's minds. Mm. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, it was not captured in mind. No, but I think we all remember where we were when you heard the news. True enough. Let's join that. Let's revisit those tales in our next break. Yeah, let's. Yes. Okay. <laughs> okay. Where are we here? As uh, as Hallblocks noted several decades ago. The past is social, and memory is socially acquired. There's a deep politics to memory, and each age attempts to refashion and remake memory to serve its own contemporary purposes. Memory is sustained through the interplay between collective recollection and repetition. The repetition engaged in various commemorative events and rituals, for example, is crucial in blurring the differences between individual interpretations of events and creating a single, highly idealized, composite image. This image then forms the generalized social framework for future recollections, and through time, individual memories tend to conform and correspond with this composite. Thus, no memory is possible outside frameworks used by people living in society to determine and retrieve their recollections. That was a quotation by Hall Blocks. And it continues, images are remembered only when located in conceptual structures defined by the community at large. But more than this, the capacity for those remembrances to be sustained is vastly dependent on the socioeconomic power of the groups who produce and maintain them. Memory is bound up with power, and both memory and its corollary, forgetting, are hegemonically produced and maintained, never seamlessly or completely, but formidably and powerfully nonetheless. The spectacular memorial event is created in order to produce a certain kind of collective memory generally at the scale of the city or in relation to the production of the nation. Examples from the past of spectacularizing and nation-building movements abound. <laughs> Sorry, hold on. Examples from the past of spectacularizing and nation-building movements abound and are often heightened through both technological innovations, such as multiple possibilities contained within the medium of film, and also through actual physical monuments and architectural grandiosity, quote, the word in stone. The grand spectacle or monumental seduction of Heisen? Hewson? 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 Uh, puts it, is frequently recoded through time, but always contains the interplay of the fixed monument, stage, building, flags, or lights, and the mobile commemoration, ritual, march, pageant, meeting, and event. The classic case of the complete aestheticization, that one's hard, of politics is evident in the architecture, monuments, and mass annual, and mass annual rallies and public meetings and marches associated with Nazi Germany. In these grandiose spectacles, there was a constant concern with expressing inevitability and monumentality. Expressive lighting was also emphasized as an essential feature in imparting a pseudo-religious flavor to commemorative events. 
Albert Speer's infamous design for the future headquarters of the Third Reich in Berlin, for example, was to include a great domed assembly hall with a holding capacity of 180,000 people, an interior diameter of 825 feet, and a height of 726 feet. If built, this structure would have dwarfed St. Peter's Cathedral in Rome. Similarly, at the Nuremberg Party Rally, Hitler's architect created a dramatic series of powerful linear lights directed skyward, creating what Sir Neville Henderson called a cathedral of ice. In these plans, the scale, ornamentation, and lighting were all carefully designed to give a religious or sovereign monumentality to the grand leader of the glorious nation, and at the same time to point to the inevitability of empire. As Speer described one section of the domed hall, in front of it, on a marble pedestal 46 feet in height, perched the hall's single sculptural feature, a gilded German eagle with a swastika in its claws. This symbol of sovereignty might be said to be the very fountainhead of Hitler's grand boulevard. Beneath this symbol would be the podium for the leader of the nation. From this spot, he would deliver his message to the peoples of his future empire. Hmm. So, little alignment here with the lights facing upward. Hitler, <laughs> lights facing up here in this thing. I Lovely. have to see have to see what the uh, how this reading plays out. But it's an exciting journey so far. Interesting in comparison. <laughs> Ooh. Is that me next? Yeah. Patriotism and imperialism were linked by Hitler and Speer in the formation of an aesthetics of the Third Reich's imagined empire. Local Germanic symbols, such as the eagle, were juxtaposed with national symbols of the political apparatus, such as the swastika, and formally merged in the vast, spare, and awe-inspiring architecture of grand domes and boulevards. The production of public memory often relies on both official and vernacular cultural expressions in this way, with the vernacular element tied more to the local, often city scale, and the official or state element tied to the national scale. Patriotism is thus often central in the construction of public memory, quote, because such language has the capacity to mediate both vernacular loyalties to local and familiar places and official loyalties to national and imagined structures, end quote. Monuments are nothing if not selective aids to memory. This is another quote. Hmm. They encourage us to remember some things and to forget others. The process of creating monuments, especially where it is openly contested, as in Berlin, shapes public memory and collective identity. In the study of how Georges-Étienne Cartier Monument in Montreal... Um, hold on a second, sorry. I'm getting thrown off my reading here today. <laughs> Apologize to everybody. Sure, just blame it on Charlie. It's like, I said all the words there, but they didn't seem to make sense. Um, in a study of the Georges-Étienne Cartier Monument in Montreal, Osborne notes how national history is rendered as a mythic narrative acted out on, bounded by, and bonded with particular places. These particular places are most often located in the central squares and intersections of cities, and they aid in the embellishment of the memory by materializing history and linking familiar landscapes, times, selective memories, and inextricable in an inextricable embrace. The Lou de Memoire, or Places of Memory, described by historian Pierre Nora, are precisely these types of conflated spaces, where geography, history, identity, and memory run into and through each other 
and are captured and put to work in specific sites. The linking of these local urban sites with the national scale aids and celebration and ongoing legitimization of the state through the conflation of collectively perceived and remembered spaces with the mythic narratives of national destiny. In his discussion of the Cartier Monument, for example, Osborne documents how the original statue honoring Cartier, a French-Canadian who supported Canadian co Confederation and promoted better Anglo-French relations, was specifically positioned in a, selection, in a section of Montreal between the English and French-speaking populations. The statue and surrounding refuge was deliberately situated in the city to reflect the possibility of bridging the two antagonistic factions, while at the same time, the monument itself was designed to reflect the national aims of unification and harmony. Designed by a Canadian sculptor, sculptor G.W. Hill, the iconography of the proposed monument was a blatant exercise in mythologizing Cartier's heroic role in the national meta-narrative, at the same time as it refers to a putative melding of founding nations and imperial connections. Thus, the local politics of Montreal and the national ambitions for Canada were blended and cross-referenced through both the idealized image of the statue itself as well as the blatant sighting of the monument in between the Francophone and Anglophone populations. With the passage of time, however, the original meanings and intents of the monument were reworked and its national ambitions altered. The monument became a central rallying point for French protests against the constitutional agreement signed by Prime Minister Trudeau in 1982, and it was also the site of French protests against appeasement and reconciliation related to Quebec on uh, Saint-Jean-Baptiste Day on June 24th. In recent years, it served as a rallying ground for a number of local struggles against multinational corporate inroads, such as the establishment of McDonald's in the neighborhood, and as a place for alternative music and public gatherings. Thus, while the monument continues to reflect and produce memories associated with the link linkages between local, national, and international scales, there's a shifting choreography of ceremonies which take place here, and which inexorably rework the types of linkages and meanings of the memorial through time. As the spectacles change, the urban collective memory associated with the monument also changes, and the monument becomes something of a palimpsest, reflecting both present pasts and past presents. Well, that's a new word. I've yeah, never seen. bravo. Let's break that one. Palimpsest. Yeah, I, I saw it coming. I was, <laughs> just didn't know. It would have been a great one for Anne. She loved the tough words. <laughs> she's into it. Where's Anne today? Can we? She's traveling. Can yeah. See how she's no, she's she's out of province. I think she's New Brunswick this week. And is water testing on the side, so you know. She's concerned. She's concerned <laughs> with that water. spring runoff. Yeah. Oh yeah, the floods. Yeah. Anne's dealing with floods. Can we get a definition of palimpsest going on? Uh, my, my guess is that it's kind of like a, a mix of different things happening on different timelines. Nice. Well, we're ready for that. One thing we're reflecting on these monuments here, something that I spoke about in some class, was just how, um, how these areas, yeah, they, they carry through. They kind of instill this memory in your mind. So the example that we learned about was uh, a parking lot in a small town. It was a place where they would put up the uh, Christmas tree. Right, and so like during that time, it was kind of this really collective place where you know, obviously you gather for the lighting of the tree and all that sort of stuff. And then the rest of the year, it's just a parking lot, but everybody in the community still knows it's the parking lot. We probably that say like, oh, it's 
you know, it's near the parking lot where the Christmas tree is. Right, exactly. And other people yeah. from out of town wouldn't know where that is. Right, but it's what, yeah, it's one of those things where this moment or this occasion really creates this uh, sacred place. So a palimpsest is a manuscript or piece of writing material on which the original writing has been effaced to make room for later writing, but of which traces remain. Oh. A little so, bit of different timeline thing going on, but I was pretty wrong. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's that, I guess it's that past-present thing. So, like, in the past, there was a different present. Ooh. <laughs> Isn't there always Is a different present? Yeah. I, I don't know. Sorry, and it gives space for like manipulating the document later on? Is that what we're saying here? Or like you're planning on changing the document in the future? Or just <laughs> a manuscript or a piece of writing material on which the original writing has been effaced to make room for later writing, gotcha. but of which traces remain. So it's uh, like how they love those working drawings where they can like see the lines that have been erased right lines right okay so that's a palimpsest <laughs> what if like when you're looking at a building where there was something built up against it before and there's kind of the outline of a right yeah, yeah. Nice. Good that one. might be a similar idea totally except in this case i think it's more about erasure so if you erase something bad that you wrote on a letter to a friend and then wrote over it like have a nice day what if they look at it you know through a bright light or something <laughs> Well, and this, this, obviously, this obviously brings up our most local monument that has uh, since been uh, removed from the city, right? It's something that uh, I'm sure at the time that they put it up, the people had the intentions of showing some sort of monument to the founder of the city, right? Cornwallis. Yeah, and uh, as that, as we're in this now, this more current present, that's... Obviously, other elements about Cornwallis like severely outweigh that sort of idea we had in the past, and now we no longer have it. My only question with things like that is like, then do we just are we like erasing the fact that you know Halifax was established by this really terrible person? Right. See, and, and that's should and we that's, should we sort of remember that in some ways? Right. To learn from that sort of yeah. memories. I know uh, in Germany. Um, that argument's made to deal with the like gas chambers and things like that. Yeah, right? like, it's like they, should... they let them exist to have a reminder of the past, but they're yeah. not like celebrated uh, in the same way that I think yeah, that exactly. this monument was, right? So, um, yeah, so interesting. Uh, Let's see what uh, Catherine has yeah. to say about this. Catherine! My turn here, I believe. Uh, all right, so monuments constructed in the past can become static through time and then get re energized as they are used ceremonially as part of a spectacle or commemorative event. They frequently move from a passive space into a dynamic one and then back again. Here the public may experience mythic history through orchestrated commemorations and controlled spectacle. How this orchestration of a mythic history plays out is reflective of the particular configuration of power relations operative in society at a specific moment of time. These types of relations are consistently shifting following the pursuit, prosil? Processual? Processual? That like makes like sense. a procession? Yeah, I get that. I was just like, is this procession? No. Processional. Processual. Yeah, There's no yeah, end, it's though. It's not processional. It's, it's like processual. Processional. Definitions. Nature of hegemony, or hegemony. 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 There's no D there. Yeah, hegemony. hegemony. Okay, let me start this sentence over for anybody listening. These types of relations are constantly shifting following the processual nature of hegemony which is never complete or predictable, but always 
uh, reconstituted in particular contexts. Contemporary cultural geography is thus involved not in documenting and describing the traces left in the landscape or the contemporary nexus of economic and political forces operating to produce those traces, but rather engages in archaeology of power that is polymorphous and protean and must be researched in detail using a great variety of sources. So processual is relating to the study of process. Oh, so excellent. Yeah. Um, Crampton's investigation of the Burt Trekker monument in Pretoria documents a particular configuration of power that converged to simultaneously produce an inauguration of a memorial space, the formation of a collective Afrikaner memory, and the initiation of an apartheid regime. In his examination of the monument and its immediate and long-term effects, he locates the memorial and its commemorative festival in a rich, well-documented well web of relations and processes, including those of agricultural change, rural-urban migration, proletarianization, the rise of a class of organic Afrikaner intellectuals, and the structural economic crisis, as well as the more obvious issues of race, racial formation and nation building. As with Osborne's pieces, Crampton describes the actual sighting of the monument a few miles outside of Pretoria as significant because Voortrekker history was seen to culminate at Pretoria and because it is directly visible from Pretoria's parliament buildings. The specific location in a specific city was crucial for the nation in framing of Afrikaner legitimacy and helped to produce, authenticate, and bind local images and memories of the Voortrekker trek to the larger claims to governmental control by whatever means necessary, including the segregati segregative, segregative <laughs> system of apartheid. A key moment in the production of nationalist sentiments and the seeds of collective memory formation was both the 1938 centenary celebrations of the trek, as well as the monument's inauguration in 1949. The inauguration festival aided in the formation of an imagined community, one that could be written in a national myth as both modern in a technological organizational sense and traditional in the sense of a close, caring affinity group writ large. Crampton writes of the importance of this type of participation, quote, In Imagine Communities, Benedict Anderson discusses the important role of pilgrimages in developing national communities and a national consciousness. Early pilgrimages inserted otherwise unrelated localities into a system of meaning, and those participating began to imagine themselves as forming some kind of, if not at this stage, national community. Not only did these pilgrimages have the effect of imagining a community, they also mapped that community with a particular geographical scope." End quote. Although the construction and inauguration of the monument helped to solidify and codify a new form of social dislocation based on ethnic groupings, Crampton is careful to note that there was nothing natural about such ethnic groupings. The social dislocations could have been articulated in other terms. This particular form of segregation uh, and domination came into play because of the convergence of specific historical and geographical forces in operation at a particular moment, including, for example, the poor white problem of the Africana proletariat of the 1930s. 
it was a con it was in the confluence with these processes and through events such as the construction of the monument and its associated memories that apartheid as a particular kind of truth claim became produced and spatially sedimented as the only possible mode of identification for the new Africana regime. In order to move beyond the rigid boundaries of systems based on claims to authenticity and moral righteousness, such as those which upheld apartheid for so many years, Crampton argues we must move to a system of representation that resists closure and fixity and encourages ambiguity. As an example of the type of remembrance not grounded in some form of discourse of truth or claim to authenticity, he offers the contemporary counter-monument movement in Germany. In this example of the radicalizing of monuments and their relationship to public memory, monuments are produced in which visitors are expected to participate actively in the construction of the thing itself, as well as the festivities surrounding its commemoration. They thus become active producers of plural pasts and multiple memories, rather than consumers for whom a single collective memory is fashioned in stone. The next section is called Transforming the Image. Ooh. Hmm. Sounds. Should we do a little recap? <clears throat> yeah, I'm going to do a little chatsky here. So that's like a pretty clear apartheid <laughs> was bad, but this is where the myth that it was justifiable came from, kind of example. Hmm. Go I don't on. really have anything else to <laughs> say. That, uh, yeah, so... It's like it's being remembered in that present as something where uh, white South Africans were the victims. Right. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's tough. I don't know enough about it, really, other than just sit there. But, I mean, I remember it was bad times, or rather, good times when apartheid ended, but again, yeah, not too well versed. Hmm. Mm. Little segue here. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Um, okay. What <laughs> next section? That's something for the seminar. Something for the seminar. <laughs> something to think about when you're pondering the rest of this reading. Uh, is my go? Transforming the image. What is clearly of interest to many contemporary urbanists and cultural geographers and historians is not just the original constructions of these innumerable commemorative sites of collective memory, but the contemporary struggles over the transformation of these old markers and their associated meanings. The rewriting of history and memory of the translations of the past, period. <laughs> lots of sources. There was yeah, lots, there, of sources. Yeah, lots of sources. To back that one up. Yeah. As historians of memory like to point out, Whoa, there's a historian of memory out there. <laughs> Whoa, PhDs. <laughs> As historians of memory like to point out, memory is, profound, is a profoundly unstable category of analysis. And an archaeology of memory and its physical manifestations in the landscape can never seek to simply show the reflexive workings of collective memory in a given epoch. Rather, the traces of memory left in the landscape point to the political, cultural, and economic forces which cohered at that moment to produce a vision of the way a dominant society perceived and represented itself to itself. As Hutton notes, places of memory viewed as wellsprings by the memorialists of the 19th century are regarded by historians today as mirrors in which people once tried to see themselves. In the Soviet Union during the Cold War, for example, there was reliance on grandness of scale 
and on spare, abstract, and highly symbolic forms. The use of towering, ideal-type figures were emblematic of the new man and new woman, who were valiantly engaged in creating the perfect world of communism. This, <laughs> this style represents the ultimate politicization of art, where every detail of artistic design is abstracted and generalized in order to better represent a particular political ideology. Sorry. <laughs> With the perfect world of communism. Really got it really did. I was I had Anne. I was thinking of Anne. Can we there. call Anne? <laughs> yeah. We gotta call Anne. Well, I'll try it when you're ready. I'll give her a call. Um, okay. So sorry. So uh, this style represents the ultimate politicization of art, where every detail of artistic design is abstracted and generalized in order to better represent a particular political ideology. In addition to these ubiquitous laborers, uh, reoccurring motifs in Soviet monuments and memorials included the USSR victory over Nazism, the cult of the charismatic <laughs> communist leaders, Marx, <laughs> Lenin, and Stalin. Mm. Charismatic <laughs> that Stalin. Was a great paragraph. Yeah. <laughs> in a recent article on the transformation of public monuments from, from the Soviet era, Forrest and Johnson analyzed the profound struggles over these places of memory that have occurred during the past decade. With the breakup of the USSR and the end of the Cold War, the po politics of memory has become a vicious battleground in the former satellite states. <clears throat> and in Russia, as the political elite in each region attempt to wrest control over the symbols and meanings of the, quote, nation at this critical historical juncture. Forrest and John Johnson argue that during moments of major political disjuncture, when national and individual identity is challenged in fundamental ways, the politics of memory rises to the fore, and monuments, in a particular, in particular, become sites of great conflict. As such, they believe that the analysis of the lieu de mémoire, or places of memory, provides an ideal way to trace underlying continuities and discontinuities in national identity politics. A good example of the ways in which places of memory can reveal a changing conception of the nation, they claim, is through an examination of the fate of existing monuments. During periods of historical disjuncture, monuments often suffer one of three possible fates. Co-optation and glorification, disavowal or contestation. In Moscow during the period from 1991 to 99, the four monuments which they examined manifest all three of these fates as rival political elites grasped every opportunity to impose a particular vision of Russian national identity on the city. In their study, as with the Fortrecker monument and the Cartier mo uh, monument, the location of these monuments in particular, uh, in particular symbolic urban sites is crucial reflecting the ongoing dialectic between local city-based meanings and memories and those associated with collective memory formation at the scale of the nation. They write that the most intense and rapid change usually happens in a state's core cities, and especially in the capital. Elite-driven changes in the symbolic landscape will therefore tend to occur earlier and more radically in core cities, and less or occasionally not at all in smaller towns and rural areas far from the center. Perhaps the most contested monument of the post-Soviet period is the Lenin Mausoleum on Red Square. With its placement in the symbolic center of the capital city and with Lenin's body, the single most sacred artifact for Russian communists, uh, interred, interred? Interred. Interred? Like interred? Like in the tear. Oh, in, in the, the tear. tear. In the tear. Uh, oh, like in the ground. Um, yes. Okay. Interred within. This monument represents the apotheosis of symbolic capital 
of four Russian political elites. Forrest and Johnson show how the potential transformation of this monument remains a bitter struggle between those for whom the mummified body of Lenin serves as an embarrassing reminder of a failed Soviet past, and for those whom the body and the mausoleum are also strongly associated with the Russian Revolution and certain positive aspects of communist rule. And are revered, <coughs> excuse me, and are revered with a near religious fervor. As different elites have come to power, they have sought to wrest control over this and other Lenin-inspired sites in the name of a new Russia. But the collective memory of the tomb and what it represents is gravid with contrasting and conflicting feelings. In this case, elite disavowal is insufficient to wipe the slate clean and to begin again. The past is problematic, but it remains. So just really quick sidebar for you guys. We were having a conversation the other day, Charlie, just about how I assumed a lot of things would happen in my life uh, as I was a kid. One of those things is I just always assumed that I'd be mummified when I die. <laughs> <laughs> and, and now that we're reading this now, I, I'm kind of revisiting it, and it's like, yeah, why not? You know? If, throwing it up if there, like, you become a communist leader, maybe you could become mummified. Oh, like, if I start saving now, I could probably pay for this myself, you know? In that uh, perfect world of communism, perfect. you would be the mummified Lenin. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Um, sorry, just had to throw that out there because I'm kind of laughing and long as we're doing this reading. Yeah. I want people to be laughing with me. I mean, yeah. we all have these narratives of how we're going to think of the future, and when you look back at them after that never happens, it's hilarious. Mm. If you ever look at old illustrations of, you know, what the year 1999 is supposed to look like, right. yeah. everyone's wearing spacesuits and they're driving nuclear-powered rocket ships to work. It's... Yeah. I mean, ludicrous, but mm. at the time, that was perfectly conceivable. Still sounds great. <laughs> Still I sounds mean, great. hey, I thought I'd have my shit together by this time in my life. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just in We're school. Gathered <laughs> <laughs> yeah, around my phone, talking to the future. <laughs> That's right. Um, okay. okay. Perhaps the most contested monument of the post-Soviet era. Oh, this is what you read, isn't it? Uh, yes, we're okay. on one of the many <laughs> one of the many felicitous <laughs> partnerships between state desires and the logic of the market occurs in the erasure of these types of divisive, divisive and problematic monuments and their associated memories and or in the productive production of new ones. In an <laughs> in an historical study, Sherman examines, examines the rise of commemoration in France as a practice of representation that enacts and gives social substance to the discourse of collective memory. This memory is actively produced in the context of both market and state building processes. In the commemoration of the 1870 war with Prussia, for example, an organization called Souvenir Francais arose that was dedicated to preserving French war graves and memorials that were lost in the lost provinces of Alsace. This organization arose in a period of heightened French nationalism in the 1880s and 1890s and served as a constant reminder of Franco-Prussian conflict and French national identity. French monuments of this period were dedicated to the dead of a particular town and aided in the evocation of a national community unified in mourning. At the same time, the production of these markers and monuments became a lucrative industry, which provided a commercial justification for the continued deployment around the nation. It seemed like monuments were a way bigger deal before. Like, how often are there monuments anymore? 
Yeah, no, I uh, I'd have to agree. They, like the nine eleven one, that's the one that I can think of. Like right. what? Yeah, yeah, that's like a major idea. major kind of event. I mean, us in North America, we don't kind of like lose big wars where we've been invaded yeah. or anything like that. That's about as close as you can get. And it's kind of weird these days to be like, oh yeah, let's like put up a statue of that guy. Yeah, it's, it's kind <laughs> of like, <laughs> there's, there's lots of plaques getting thrown around <laughs> these days. But, uh, but yeah, less monuments. I wonder what's taken their place in the public eye, I guess, or the public realm to give importance to these types of things. Trump Towers? Yeah, like, you know, yeah, there you go. Uh, well, I think of, like, art. In, like, I don't know, the Vancouver airport is just, like, filled with Haida art. Hmm. And, like, West Coast First Nations art, and that's almost like... That's where we're putting our public money now. Yeah. It's more into celebrations Maybe. of life. As opposed to uh, remembering the dead. Until oh. hmm. the next time we lose a war. Yeah. Yeah. Which, I mean, maybe it's just because we don't have as many wars anymore, which is nice. Mm, yeah, I guess. I mean, less people... There's more people, so less people die. It's like, it affects you less. I guess, I've got no idea. It affects me less <laughs> living in, in Nova Scotia. <laughs> I don't know too many Nova Scotians going off to war, but like, you look at pictures of 60 years ago... <clears throat> or you know whenever the world war world war two the world war two ended and this whole town is just like draped in all types of celebratory things and, and commemorative yeah. stuff so and i guess that's all still here even just down from here there's the cemetery along barrington street that's like very big time monument commemorating war yeah, there. there's that triumphal arch that we all drew for the glossary yeah and yeah we definitely have we definitely have these things right around here. Maybe uh, that'll be podcast yeah. appendix A. You could argue that there's a, they're all digital monuments now, maybe. Yeah, that's what I was trying to wonder. That's what I was trying to get at. It's like how we were obviously communicating uh, much more digitally now than we were in the 1880s. Um, so maybe that's the realm in which this exists. Mm. I feel like that's so disposable, though, which to me isn't very monumental. It just gets lost in the. You gotta keep it. You gotta keep it right here in your heart. Now, yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean. You can't just go and visit it. True. Yeah, it's a little bit more personal. Maybe people are afraid of uh, other people caring about who they care about as well. I don't know. It's. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure if there was somebody who was like a big fan of Edward Cornwallis, they're not a big fan of Edward Cornwallis anymore, or at least not in the public light, given the circumstances around that moment. Yeah, you'd be in big trouble if you were. <laughs> for sure yeah. yeah well actually we saw things like that um, remember these guys the proud boys these guys who were like this is just last fall wasn't it or or no it was the fall be previous anyways there's uh, there were British sailors weren't they that were no they were jerks they were oh I know they're totally Canadian, bad people. yeah that's Canadian right yeah, jerks. yeah they were, uh, but they were yeah they were trying to give some sort of a, a right. adversary to people defacing the monument I think, yeah, the Cornwall statue is going to be coming up in the seminars for sure, because that's a recent example of exactly this kind of stuff. Right. Nice. I'll be bringing it up in I'd my I'd be seminar. curious to see what kind of counter monument could... Yeah. I don't could know. stand in its place? Happen. Does he need to have a counter monument? I don't know. Yeah, I don't, think, I don't think you can, like, just totally flip it and, and say other things. I think you've got to find some better solution that should have been there in the first place. You know, it's kind of like... I think Anne's calling you, Travis. Oh, really? It's Anne on the line. Can we get that phone call while I keep reading? Yeah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> Anne! How's it going? Yeah, Travis is going to take that call. 
An even clearer example of the selective reimagining of place through the marketplace is given in Belanger's study of the raising of the Montreal Forum and construction of the new Molson Centre. The Forum had existed for 75 years. Through that time, it emerged as the heart and soul of Montreal and of Quebec. It was a vital public space that had hosted political rallies and concerts as well as the beloved hockey team, the Montreal Canadiens, Canadiens, as they say on TSN. In discussing the popular sentiment associated with the Forum, Belanger showed how these feelings had become deeply embedded in a collective memory of both the city and the province. He wrote that certain places and buildings, like the old Forum, have grown to express and embody popular memories of the city through a complex interplay of production, consumption, reconstruction, interpretation, and diverse tactics of remembrance. In 1996, however, the Forum was projected for demolition with the Canadians scheduled to move to a new high-tech arena completely financed by private capital and inserted into the Windsor Block, a rapidly gentrifying sector of downtown Montreal. When the move to the new Molson Centre was proposed, there was a public outcry, which led to the strong corporate marketing, or which led to a strong corporate marketing campaign to persuade Montrealers that the popular traditions associated with the Forum could be effectively transported and transplanted to the new venue. In addition to the insistence that the memories of the Forum could survive, survive the move, Molson also introduced the familiar corporate refrain of the necessity of progress and the importance of companies such as Molson to Montreal's civic and cultural life. Belanger locates this kind of market-based effort to rework memory in a political economy of urban collective memory. Thus, in addition to the, to the desires of political elites to earn a symbolic capital by controlling the means associated with old monuments, a capitalist logic may also pervade the decisions concerning their disavowal or co-optation. In cases such as the Forum in Montreal, where certain memories can be exploited for profit, while others tend to retard capitalist progress, corporate, corporate discord, discourse operates to encourage the retention of the former while actively attempting to obliterate the latter. Quote, in these processes of promotion and redefinition, local history and, lo and the local past have been made to sell the projects initiated by investors and promoters. Interestingly, these new dynamics require that urban centers pull their cultural history in contradictory directions. On the one hand, they require that identity and history be valorized. On the other hand, they require that selective aspects of the past are devalued. Typically, the past that is being marketed and sold is selectively embellished, involving a reconstruction of chosen historical fragments and to use Connerton's phrase, an organized forgetting of other fragments. On such occasions, traditions, heritage, and the past become things that enterprise and government often exploit. They have become products. Despite the seeming inevitability of a seamless hegemony, as the state and the market form strategic alliances in an attempt to control the formation and transformation of collective memory, this suturing cannot be total. The uh, hegemony over memory is never complete, as memory remains multiple and mobile, with fragments that are not subsumable in a holistic logic. Although faux memories produced through state and corporate logics might offer a warm sense of continuity and universality, falsely negating historical conflict and entertainment spectacle sites may seem to obliterate former sites of public memory, such as the Montreal Forum. 
This is a weird and long sentence. <laughs> Whoa. Yeah. All right. Etc. Etc. Entertainment spectacle sites may seem to obliterate former sites of public memory, such as the Montreal Forum. These faux monuments of entertainment and enter and entrainment yes. may also contain the seeds of difference and of resistance to dominant hegemonies. In understanding these seeds of difference and various forms of resistance, however, it is necessary to analyze the reception of the spectacle, as well as counter-monument movements, in addition to examining the context of its production. Next section. Yeah. Stonewalling. That was a, that was a tough that was, Good job. <laughs> yeah. Made it. Uh, yeah, you, you did a good job there. Uh, speaking of doing good jobs, I'm just going to hammer through this here because we're... <laughs> Yeah, this is long. This is long. Yeah, but that's why we're doing it for you, the listeners. <laughs> yeah, someone <laughs> do your do your process portfolio while you listen or something. That's oh, right. a good call. Do my process portfolio. That too. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so somebody's gonna do it. <laughs> Moving on, uh, stonewalling normative memory production, or SNMP, as, <laughs> as it's known in in past present history circles. Collective projects of resistance to normative memory production include those which refuse to accede to the scripting of history in the format of the dominant power. These are memories that evade the regulatory practices of the state and or the market with individuals and groups either forming counter practices associated with document monuments or creating their own places of mourning and celebration. In these landscapes of minority memory, those groups that have been rendered invisible in the landscape or have been discredited or marginalized in mainstream memorization, memorialization oppose normative readings and or create sites which speak to a different interpretation of historical events. Two examples of this form of resistance via public counter-hegemonic monuments are analyzed by Burke who investigated the construction of two recent monuments pertaining to violence against women. In her article, Burke examined the struggle over the right to public space that was engendered by each monument. The first memorialized the murder of 14 women and wounding of 13 others on December 6, 1989, in Montreal. On that day, a male gunman entered a university building, separated the women from the men, and shot 27 women in a period of 20 minutes. In an effort to foreground the women's lives and names, rather than the killer, who is rapidly becoming the center of attention in the media. A group of women in Vancouver, BC, initiated plans to create a national monument, which named the monument and left his name unspoken. The women named the proposed monument, Marker of Change. Initially, the monument received widespread support, but within a short period of time, the support turned to vilification and even bomb threats. Why the change? Burke delineates how the proposed inscription on the monument threatened established hierarchies of domination through the revelation of the public secret of male violence against women. The inscription reads, quote, To women, murdered by men, women of all ages, all colors, all creeds, all races, we their sisters and brothers remember and work for a better world, end quote. This inscription, as Burke noted, committed the taboo in Clifford Geertz's memor uh, memorable phrase of, quote, telling the truth in a public place, unquote, and hence was subject to widespread animosity. In addition, the proposed location of the monument in Vancouver's downtown east side was opposed by activists and residents of the neighborhood who felt that the local disappearances of numerous impoverished women, many, men, uh, many of whom were First Nations and Aboriginal women, 
had gone unnoticed by the police and media alike. Without a corresponding interest in the local women, local activists felt that the monument was inappropriately positioned in their neighborhood. With time and a massive educational campaign, and with the instigation of police activity in solving the crimes against local women, public sentiment began to shift, and the money and support for Marker of Change resumed. After this monument was installed and activism and awareness concerning the missing women was heightened, a second monument memorializing the disappearance of the local women was also erected in Crab Park. This memorial was inscribed, quote, The Heart! In honor of the spirit of people murdered in the downtown east side, many were women and many were native aboriginal women. Many of these cases remain unsolved. All of my relations has its own memory. Burke argues that these two monuments illuminate a number of crucial issues concerning memory formation in public space. The most obvious is the strong gendering of space, wherein male dominance in the social sphere is reflected in the constitution of monuments and in commemoration rituals. This type of sedimentation of patriarchy in place through the absence of women in the landscape works to render events such as the actual literal disappearance of the women in the downtown east side as insignificant, unworthy of public alarm or action. When both patriarchy and spatial absence were challenged, challenged and conspicuously challenged in this case, with a monument that named male violence against women and another which named the missing women and foregrounded their ongoing public marginalization as women and native, the normative structures of memory production in Canada were deeply disrupted. The other key issue which these monuments call to attention is scale. The location of Marker of Change in Vancouver, which is neither the site of the massacre nor the national capital, is significant. The monument's physical presence is an active urban neighborhood. Um, in an active urban neighborhood made the abstract ideals of struggle against male violence seem tangible and permanent. According to Burke, this illuminates an interesting tension about public space between imagined discursive and physical worlds. It was the permanence, visibility, and specificity in physical public space that so disrupted and disturbed the monument's detractors and was so fiercely insisted upon by its proponents. Equally important, the monument's location outside of Montreal made the issue of violence against women generalizable and systemic, underscoring women's key refrain that the killings were not isolated events by a madman but were part of a much larger pattern of hate crimes against women. The issue of absence and present is also an important theme in Barton's examination of memory, architecture, and race. Drawing on Ralph Ellison's novel, The Invisible Man, <laughs> sorry, I like that book, uh, Barton <laughs> argues that black culture is largely invisible in the public eye because of where it resides. American history is the history of dual racial landscapes, and in order to interpret and comprehend black culture in the 20th century, it's necessary to understand all the spatialization of memory. Barton, along with Wilson and Weiser, all describe a major impact of legalized segregation as one of removing the black population from the public gaze and thus effectively writing black history and black culture out of the normative forms of memory production. In cross-disciplinary conferences and discussions such as are found in Barton's book, Sites of Memory, however, this invisibility is contested through documentation, art, storytelling, architecture, and critical analysis. Weiser asks, in 2001, can lack of place or absence be marked? The answer lies in the question itself. So that was, that was pretty interesting there. Um, 
when they were talking about uh, black culture being written right out of the landscape, just by not having people around. Again, this out of sight, out of mind sort of a thing. Mm. Also, um, I've got the feeling, oh no, Invisible Man, that is about the Invisible Guy, right? Like, wraps himself up and sheets and stuff. No. No? I haven't read the, read the book. Right, no. okay. Um, I've also gone through a bit of a glasses malfunction here, mid-reading. I've got a Oh my god, did you have glasses <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, I'm going... Going in at one eye, so I've got uh, those screws. We gotta keep this reading oh, exciting. Yeah, we gotta keep it. We gotta keep it passionate. So um, it's not a good podcast without a crisis. That's right. That's right. So I'm on glasses repair here, but good thing you're can you see? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I can see ish. I mean, this is some some faulty craftsmanship. The, where where know, did you get these? Yeah, so like these glasses, glasses. <laughs> <laughs> and this happens. Um, but yeah, so just uh, to bring the. Listeners into the reality that we're existing in here. All right. Well, you've got two paragraphs to fix your glasses. Nice. Okay. <laughs> the heat is on. In another work on presence and absence, with a focus on the positioning of civil rights memorials, Dwyer investigates the political debates surrounding memorial landscapes in the South. He shows that while the historic invisibility of African Americans of African Americans on the memorial landscape is being redressed. Contemporary monuments and memorials remain ambiguous and uneven. And while the absolute number of markers to the civil rights movement has increased considerably in the past two decades, the location of the monuments and plaques is rarely in the courthouse or at City Hall or in any of the traditional spaces of civic commemoration, but rather informally segregated and often often rapidly declining African-American neighborhoods. Further, because the memorials cost money to produce and maintain, those groups, particularly state agents, with financial means and political connections, have a great ability to influence the direction of the memorials and their associated histories. Dwyer writes of these memorial sites, quote, they are appropriated by groups across the spectrum of racial politics as sites for political rallies and protests. As major attractions in the growing heritage tourism industry, the history represented at these sites has been tailored to appeal to a mass audience. Their reliance upon state funding and corporate largesse makes them further susceptible to influence. Far from neutral, consensual renderings of the past, civil rights memorials are at once the product of and conveyance for contemporary politics associated associated with race, economic development, and social memory. Thus, even with these memorials to social movements, whose major purpose and challenge was the disruption of dominant hegemonies of race and space, the ability to continue this disruption through collective memory production remains fragmented and partial. As with Burke's study of the monument to women suffering from male violence, both the financial means of producing the memorial and a major part of its public perception via the tourist industry or the media, continue to reflect dominant systems of power and control. Nevertheless, progress has been made and counter-hegemonic agendas are finding a place in many contemporary debates. As Dwyer points out, the civil rights movement has, through time, been able to claim a, p- a place in, the, in public memorial space. And this represents a major difference from an earlier public landscape in which black culture and history were rendered completely invisible. Resisting and or transforming dominant forms of memory production in the landscape is somewhat easier when the city in which these forms are located is in a state of upheaval and flux. Uh, Both Till and Stratagakos, 
among many others, have examined recent and ongoing contestations over monument and memory in the city of Berlin. Berlin, of course, is the most beloved city for memory historians because it represents the ultimate urban palimpsest. A, a quote, city test frantically being written and rewritten, end quote. Text. Text. Oh, what did I say? <laughs> test. Oh, a test. A city text. That makes a lot more sense. As if they're testing the people anyway. <laughs> it's like they're constantly, it's, it's horrible. Travis has his glasses fixed and now <laughs> yeah, sorry. back to his old wacky self. No, but they're quite blurry from my fingerprints, so it's all just, I'm just making up as I go. As Berlin engages with the widespread memorial obsession of the past decade, it must work through not just how to mark its presence as a newly rebuilding capital city, but also to negotiate how to mark the many absences wrought by its Nazi and communist past. In an article on the new Wach monuments, Neue Wache monument in Berlin, for example, Till outlines how resistance to the redesign memorial in 1993 led to small but significant changes in the interpretation of history and in the ongoing production of national collective memory in Germany. One object of contention in the redesign was the statue by Kathe Kollwitz an enlarged copy of a 1937 piece entitled Mourning Mother with Dead Son. In addition to the religious symbolism of a mother holding a dead son, which many saw as a version of the Christian icon, the Pieta, the other objection to the statue opposed the gender-biased depiction of this, quote, universal mother. The idealization of motherhood framed women in terms of reproduction and elided their central roles in the war and afterwards as citizens, warriors, workers, oppressors, and victims. The Pieta figure closed out the public memory, not only of Jews, but of women who were sent to the gas chambers or who died in other ways during the war. Women, argued the historian Kosilek, were not victims simply because they lost their sons. The reality was far worse. Although these objections did not lead to com concrete changes in the memorial, a third set of objections based on the commemoration of the dead did have an impact. In addition to the Colvitz statue, the redesigned memorial also contained a plaque to the right of the entrance, which read, quote, The new guardhouse is the place of memory and remembrance of the victims of war and tyranny, a central German memorial dedicated to those who died during the two world wars and the two dictatorships, end quote. This plaque seemed to call for a remembrance of the dead that was universal and all forgiving. One which, call, one which uh, blurred the social boundaries between those prosecuted and murdered under the Third Reich on the one hand, and the SS officers and high-ranking Nazi, Nazi functionaries on the other. This attempt to represent all Germans as victims of war was roundly criticized as part of an effort by the political elite, such as those in the Kohl administration, to master the past, control its meanings, and reframe collective memory in a manner beneficial to the state. As a result of collective resistance to this blatant form of memory production, another plaque was added on the entrance to the interior room. This plaque named the different groups of people who should be honored by memory, providing the key distinctions between perpetrators and victims that the earlier monument elided. It's a lot of plaques. Yeah, and you know what? It kind of goes back to what you were saying earlier about how it seems like we're almost putting these types of imagery out there for the public. Public imagery is much more artful and not as rememberable like these things, everything you guys are just reading, it's like such a bummer. You know what I mean? It's like, oh my God, I gotta remember these things. I mean, I guess, not I guess, like I know they're important, 
and all this stuff. But I mean, it's it's kind of like it's kind of tough to have. You imagine they have some sort of grand celebration to like unveil the monument. It's like I'm sure the party's over pretty quick. You know? Well, it's almost like it's not memory anymore when you have to start producing it or like counter producing it and try to fight someone who's so-called remembering things yeah, correctly. It's, yeah, it seems to be very uh, misplaced. Yeah. Once it's physical, it's got this other life. <laughs> nice. Um, also, just throw the word functionaries out there. Um, obviously, in this term, it's high-ranking Nazi functionaries. Just talking about the word functionaries here. Replace the C with a K, and you might have a, like a great name for a, a jam band, you know? The functionaries. The functionarian. <laughs> See, you gotta make it German. I'm trying to, I'm trying to remove that from the point. Anyways, sorry about the long cast here, guys. Yeah. Hang in there. Yeah, hang we're, we're we're hanging in we're, there. Yeah, just a few more. Yeah, we're we're barely hanging. Okay. Hope the other ones are short. <laughs> the question of Berlin's voids. It's my turn, right? Yes, I think so. Yeah. Um, okay. The question of Berlin's voids and redesignations is also addressed by Hussein. Is it? Anyways, Houston, who reflects on both the physical voids and the architectural fabric of the city, those structures of presence and absence, memory and forgetting which haunt the city, but also the historical void left by the Nazi destruction of Berlin's thriving Jewish life and culture. The most brilliant monument to these voids takes the shape of the new Jewish museum designed by the architect Daniel Liebskind. The zigzag museum structure, which he calls Between the Lines, is a model of the type of ambiguity and plurality called for in the counter-monument movement, yet is also replete with significance. The longitudinal axis of the building, which contains an empty space slicing through the zigzag structure at each intersection and extending from the top to the bottom of the building, is an abyss that Liebskin calls the void. This space, as Hewson describes it, is both literal and conceptual. Quote, and clearly it signifies as a void, it signifies absence, as the absence of Berlin's Jews, most of whom perished in the Holocaust. As a fractured void, it signifies history, a broken history without continuity, the history of Jews in Germany, of German Jews, and therefore also of the history of Germany itself. But it also forecloses the opposite view that sees the Holocaust as the inevitable telos of German history. Jewish life in Germany has been fundamentally altered by the Holocaust, but has not stopped. The void thus becomes a space nurturing memory and reflection for the Jews and for Germans. His building itself writes the discontinuous narrative that is, that is Berlin, inscribes it physically into the very movement of the museum visitor, and yet opens a space from a remembrance to be articulated and read between the lines. The Loopskin Museum is a monument, monument to memory one that is open to multiple significations and to the changes wrought by time, but which nevertheless remains relentless and in its profound commemorative message. The void and the building itself insist on remembrance. Exactly how memory takes shape is unimportant besides the fundamental core issue of remembrance itself. In this mission, it is a type of counter monument to the nameless, soulless buildings of global corporate architecture many of which are rapidly filling in other voids of Berlin. These latter voids were formerly the spaces of the wall of Spears' wrecked neighborhoods and of those sectors of the city obliterated in the bombing raids of World War II. The corporate-inspired buildings, which are now being constructed to fill these other voids, are the buildings of forgetting and of anti-memory. 
They are the architecture of a future without a past. Ooh, Ooh deep. It's highlighting that last one. Oh, yeah. Sure. <laughs> Getting on Definitely. my highlighter tool. We're on to the conclusion. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> it's still quite long. <laughs> um, there's 65 pages of reading this week. I just added them up. Yeah. Uh, this one only covers about 17. Uh, so, good luck, everybody. Yeah. The other one's got more pictures, though. Yeah, there are more yeah. pictures. Good. No pictures in this one. No pictures. No. Okay. no, we didn't say we were fast. <laughs> no, we just said we were absolutely correct and entertained. Especially about palimpsest. Yeah, palimpsest. <laughs> Look that one up. So the conclusion opens with a quotation by Andreas Hoysen, or whoever this Hoysen sauce guy is. Yeah, that's what <laughs> I kept on wanting to say there, but I also want to say Hussein, but uh, it, looks, it looks Swedish or Ooh, Danish Hussein. or something. Uh, so the quotation says, historical memory today is not what it used to be. <laughs> Thanks, Dad. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Those memories just ain't what they're going to be Can you read the rest of this in that accent? <laughs> 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 All right. What is the relationship between history and memory, and how does place or geography play into it? The kinds of memory excavations that Proust initiated through taste, geographers do through place and placemaking. Writers and historians often have a strong abstract awareness of the interconnections of space, time, memory, and recollection. But geographers tend to pursue doggedly and in far greater detail the precise ways in which memory becomes embedded in the actual physical landscape through the daily habits and movements associated with specific buildings, walkways, monuments, and vistas. That this embedding is highly fraught, generally bound up with the processes of nation building, social control, urban politics, and hegemonic formation, becomes immediately evident with the initiation of geographical research in this genre. So in this progress report, I, like particularly me, uh, <laughs> focused on the politics of memory surrounding monuments and memorials, emphasizing in particular the relationship between urban and national scales, as well as the role of commemoration in the attempt to suture these scales together. This emphasis, however, begs a more fundamental question which is, why is there a necessity for public memorialization in the first place? And why do the construction of these monuments and associated commemorative festivities now take place almost exclusively in cities, especially capital cities? The memorialization of the dead with public monuments of some kind now seems natural and inevitable, an eternal practice. How could we, the living, not commemorate our dead in this manner? According to Nora, however, this form of public memor—jeez, memor I cannot get this word. <laughs> public memorialization is largely a 19th-century invention. Although there have always been individual gestures to personal honor, the large-scale evocation of human worth, dignity, and sacrifice, and the connection of these emotions to the spaces of city, nation, and empire, came together only in the last 150 years. These linkages rose alongside the imperial ambitions of nation-states, who were then grappling with identity formation on new scales, requiring national narratives of loyalty, timelessness, and belonging beyond the individual or local region. The relationship between monumental, culturally inscribed ambitions and national narratives is well documented, with many scholars showing the links between the rise of imperialism, new relations to time and space, new forms of class consciousness and class struggle, and new constructions of nation and nationalism in the period of high modernity. 
The shifting experiences of everyday life which characterized modernity, modernity were a major shock of the 19th century, leading to changes in almost every venue of social and political life. What then is the trajectory for memory and politics as we move into the 21st century? Are new forms of time-space compression in late capitalism entailing new imaginations and memories of space? Which space? Which scale? What are the effects of globalization and postmodernization on the production of memory and memorialization? Questions. So many what questions. types of what types of monuments, memorials, and spectacles will arise in the coming decades? Hoysen writes that the form in which we think of the past is increasingly memory without borders, rather than national history within borders. Thus, globalization has altered our memories and our imagined communities, expanding our knowledge and our interests beyond the national scale. In certain ways, then, our contemporary obsessions with memory in the present may well be an indication that our ways of thinking and living, uh, and living temporality itself, are undergoing a significant shift. If this is so, then, is the nation the only scale that will soon be subsumed to the supranational, or will a city also lose out in this paradigmatic rescaling of memory? Just going to throw this out there. Um, I'm going to highlight these questions and then ask them in order during the seminar. <laughs> That's a good idea. <laughs> and just be like, hmm, I think this is a uh, just little tip there to seminar leaders this week. <laughs> That's right, yeah. um, so even now, over the past de several decades, why has the city remained so vitally important in commemorative events, in the formation of the spectacle, and in the ongoing performance of the nation? Is it because the nation is not a natural scale of affiliation? Is it because imperialism is clearly economically and politically irrational and the local or city-scale movements, monuments, and commemorations are a necessity to harness the hearts and minds of individuals and groups? Or are cities, particularly capital cities, potential sites of resistance and conflagration, self-confidently autonomous, often politically left, and generally insistent on democratic accountability and the equitable distribution of resources? Are cities, in other words, problematic sites that must be constantly appeased and co-opted by the political elite and the bourgeoisie. Following the terrorist attacks on the World Trade Center, the conflation of the city, New York, with America was instantaneous. What eventually happens with respect to the site of this attack will speak volumes about the relationship between the city, the nation, and the globe in the contemporary era. Although generally aimed at scales larger than the city at the time of their commemoration, I believe that large-scale public monuments and buildings tend to return to the city through time. The life cycle of monuments is one of movement through scales of memory, even as the stone itself remains in place. The architectural plan chosen for the World Trade Center site was designed by the studio of Daniel Liebeskind, the same firm which designed the Jewish Museum in Berlin. Entitled Memory Foundations, the plan is composed of an office tower of 1776 feet, marking the U.S. Year of Independence, and a number of smaller office towers, retail buildings, cultural centers, and a memorial park. The final design will not include any reference to the tremendous struggle over the question of exactly how the memorial should harness the memory of those who died when the Twin Towers collapsed, especially with respect to the weight, uh, weighting of the loss of life versus the necessity to maintain the space as a site of capital accum accumulation. In this sense, the original discursive construction and struggle over the memorial is generally lost, Nevertheless, Liebeskind's brilliant articulation of memory and forgetting, presence and absence in the Jewish Museum in Berlin, bodes well for an open-ended, creative, and profound space. A space where the politics of memory, memory production, can flourish in a counter-hegemonic vein 
while at the same time following the inexorable imperative to remember. Mm. Remembrance. That's what it's all about. Mm-hmm. In this article, that's for sure. For sure. So, Catherine, um, I was actually pretty pleased that she didn't lean too hard into things. It seemed like she was fairly impartial with, with mm-hmm. a lot of this information. So that's, that's good. Uh, any big takeaways? Anybody is soaking it in now? And it's kind of difficult for me to read this and really analyze it yeah, at the same time. Yeah, some stuff time. about capitalism. Um. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess, and this idea that these monuments, um, I mean, yeah, exactly what you said here with the Cornwallis statue. This is kind of really uh, all right here. I mean, these, these types of things mean something to some people. They mean different things to other people. And over time, um, that all changes. So I guess creating these monuments that are you know, permanent, or at least semi-permanent, None of them are made to um, fall apart. They're supposed to be the strongest mm-hmm. symbol. But the um, symbol changes. Yeah, it's gotta, you've got to give... They're a bit more delicate than their stone and ironwork may. I think a, a common theme among a lot of the history discussions for the past you know, nine months or whatever, have it's come up a lot that um, ideology ends up being built through architecture. Mm. Uh, and I think producing memory, at least that's what this author's saying, is kind of part of that production of ideology into brick and mortar kind of stuff. Mm. And uh, doing that can really change the way that stuff is remembered, which is yeah, you know, pretty reinforces disturbing. reinforces that ideology. Yeah. Nice. It's pretty mm. sweet. As soon as you said nine months, I thought, so I have me like... That's not how long we've been in school. This, you're having a history baby tomorrow. That's what I'm saying, yeah. <laughs> I could have been having a history baby by now. Actually, maybe that was the history baby right there. That was awesome. Um, okay, well, let's wrap it up then. Just a reminder, we really do want to find a fantastic name for the podcast. There have um, been a couple ideas thrown out. Should we release them? Let's. What we'll do is we'll put a poll on Facebook with a few of the... Just put your submissions in the comments for this podcast. Uh, the next one will start up a poll, and there will actually be a prize for the winner. Chances are, it's going to be hanging out, hanging out with the <laughs> hanging out with the podcasters here. Um, you know, getting some, getting some of our time, uh, not necessarily on the podcast, but uh, some other time. So we need to get some mugs made or something. Yeah, something like that. Maybe uh, <laughs> so like headbands. Sweatband. Yeah, I'm saying, as soon I'm saying as... we like it's like I'm part of the team. Now. <laughs> yeah, you're on board. Um, so other than that, is there anything else we want to add? Or uh, I might add that I've been listening to this on the podcast app on my iPhone, which means I can download it and listen to it on the way to and from school. I don't know if anyone else has been doing that, but. Uh, Excellent. app that you guys are using to make this, not the best for listening. Right. Apple Podcasts, <laughs> not so bad. Well, I noticed you can't skip through the app that you use for listening. Yeah. <laughs> is, is that really the trouble? <laughs> I, mean, I listen every second. Yeah. No, exactly. Um, I mean, there's so many juicy, juicy tidbits in there. It's kind of tough to, tough to skip over. But yeah, no, I get it. So you can find them there. We may continue to change platforms. The podcast is always <laughs> evolving and, and just getting better and better. Like memory, it's just, just like, it's just just like, like that. It's like that um, that word that we learned, which I already forgot. Palimpsest. Palimpsest. Yeah. Nice. All right. On that note, I'm Travis Cook Young. Charlie Bourne here. Andrew Zitlow. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next week. <laughs>